Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Yes, good evening. Um, I am a professor of French. I am in the administration here, but most importantly, I'm a longtime friend of our guest speaker. Uh, before we get to hear him, just a few pieces of business. Uh, somehow we should really, I think, thank the sponsors for the event, the Office of Academic Programs, the College of Creative Studies, the Department of English, the College of Arts and Sciences, and the Arts and Lectures Series. I'll start this introduction by reading the first two paragraphs of the biography uh, on the Pete Hamill website, because they are, in their dry, factual way, revealing of the roots of Hamill's culture. So, here they are. Pete Hamill was born in Brooklyn, New York, the first of seven children to William and Anne Hamill, who were immigrants from Belfast, Northern Ireland. As a child, he graduated from Holy Name School in Brooklyn, then went on to prestigious Regis High School, a Jesuit institution in Manhattan. In 1959, at the age of 16, he dropped out of Regis and moved on to the New York Naval Shipyard, better known as the Brooklyn Navy Yard. There, during the peak of the Korean War, he served for a year as an apprentice sheet metal worker. At night, he went to the School of Visual Arts, then known as the Cartoonists and Illustrator School, hoping for a career as a commercial artist, end of quote. In a sense, it's all there. Born in Brooklyn. Here's the passage in his 2004 book, Downtown, My Manhattan, that relates the foundational moment when his fate as a New Yorker, a Manhattanite, was sealed. One Sunday in the summer of 1941, my mother took me and my brother Tom on one of our longest walks. We ended up at the entrance to the pedestrian ramp of the Brooklyn Bridge. We had never before seen this great span. From the Brooklyn side, the bridge rises in a graded arc. The central walkway and the roads for automobiles are flanked by its soaring suspension cables. As my mother pointed out the distant ships in harbor and river from that great height, the size of boats and bathtubs, we reached the top of the rising arc. Then for the first time, I saw them. Spires aimed at the sky, dozens of them, hundreds of them, all gilded by the morning sun. What is it? I said in a stupefied way, as my mother told me years later. Sure, you remember Peter, she said. You've seen it before. And then she smiled. It's Oz. <laughs> and so it was. Oz, indeed, the golden land of creativity and opportunity of which Pete has taken total advantage over his career and which he has enriched in return. Mother, father, seven children, family. Much of Pete's writings describe the joys and pains of his upbringing and all the lessons that he learned that have become the stuff of his later reflections. A Catholic from a family born and raised in Belfast, the Protestant community of Northern Ireland, surely all the scrapes and outright slugfests that he got into as boy and man are predicted in that biographical detail. Geography is destiny. Regis High School an all-scholarship, extremely competitive prep school for the sons of families of modest means of the New York metropolitan area. Modest means indeed, 
Most of us were flat out poor, and Pete goes into telling the tale in his autobiography, A Drinking Life, about the almost impossible situation of keeping a pair of shoes, his only pair of shoes, in working order. While the rest of us were struggling to read Caesar and Xenophon in the original Latin and Greek, Pete was spending much of his time drawing cartoons for which he had a distinct talent and which explains, I think, why some of the scenes in his memoir are so graphic. Sorry about that, Pete. I couldn't resist. Um, but he learned much from the cartoonist school, especially when the teacher told him that the big shape, the big forms, have to come first. In other words, for the journalist and novelist he was to become, the details are important, they give life to the portrait, but it is the big picture that counts. And so after dropping out of Regis and doing a stint in the Brooklyn Navy Yard to finance his cartoonist lessons, Pete has been following the big picture with compelling details ever since. He's been a columnist for the New York Post and the New York Daily News, rising to the job of editor-in-chief for both, he served as a European correspondent for the Saturday Evening Post in Dublin and Barcelona and covered wars in Vietnam, Nicaragua, Lebanon, and Northern Ireland and reflected on the journalist's art in books such as News is a Verb. Pete was drawn to fiction from an early age as he read stacks of books out of a conviction that you can't write well if you don't read the great texts. Somewhere along the way, he must have asked himself the same question formulated by Jean-Paul Sartre in 1947, what is literature? Does the novelist write to create a personal world, or should the novelist write to remake our world? Pete Hamill, from his privileged position as both novelist and journalist, would undoubtedly reply yes to the question, for both options are true for him. Now, while I believe that Pete would subscribe to the Hegelian reasoning of Sartre's assertion that writing is the means by which a society reflects on itself, I am confident that he would agree that in the fantastic house of fiction, there is room for commitment. But to become engaged, you have to understand the context. It's clear from the books, like his 2003 novel Forever, that Pete, Pete has become an historian of New York City for all roads lead to the city and to its major waterway, the North River, the subject of Pete's 2007 novel. Pete has not only traveled the world, but lived abroad for long periods of time. As he puts it in A Drinking Life, quote, after Spain, we lived in Dublin and later in Rome and San Juan and Mexico City, Laguna Beach and Washington, D.C., and saw a lot of places in between. Each time, we made the long circle home Back to New York, back to Oz, back to the scene of 9-11. Pete finished the novel Forever on September 10th, 2001, but had to add another chapter to complete the story of a man who was made immortal from the revolutionary era through September 11th, as long as he never leaves Manhattan. If you want to get a feeling of what it was like on September 11th in New York City, the panic the white darkness, the eerie silence, I recommend that you give special attention to the last 35 pages of that novel, Forever. You will notice that, exercising incredible restraint for an Irishman, he does not have recourse to hyperbole to describe that day. We all know that hyperbole is the privilege of the Irish, of course. 
Albert Camus once proposed that the first important French novel, La Princesse de Cleves, The Princess of Cleves, succeeded in highlighting the ravages of love because of its passionate monotony. In like manner, Pete Hamill's Forever has a dramatic effect on the reader of those last 35 pages because of the passionate understatement of a novel that reflects the influence of two of Pete's principal models, Hemingway and Garcia Marquez. That is, the novel is the confluence of the staccato realism of North America enhanced by the magic realism of South America. And I think that, in its way, that will be the focus of Pete Hamill's talk for us tonight, the happy concordance of cultures. He has written eloquently about the influx of all the immigrants to New York, the Germans, the Ukrainians, the Chinese, the Haitians, the Jews, even a few French, uh, the Italians, especially in a wonderful chapter in his little book, Why Sinatra Matters, and all the others too. But I suspect that if pressed to name the two major immigrations, he would reply the Irish, starting in the 1840s, and the Latinos over the past 50 or 60 years. It is with great personal pride and pleasure that I give you Pete Hamill, the bard of the city, the prose laureate of New York, who will speak to us on immigration, the lessons of New York. Pete Hamill. Thank you. Those words are um, a hard act to follow, I must say. <laughs> um, I'm at the age where I have to keep summing up who I am and what happens without having a corpse in the room, you know? Um, and I think. Uh, Ron Tobin hit every one of the points that I would have, if I was asked to identify myself, I couldn't have done a better job. Thank you, Ron. Just wonderful. Uh, tonight's subject is obviously one that's right now the subject of much anguish, anger, fatalism. Um, immigration is suddenly always followed by strings of italics, particularly if you're listening to talk radio, which I can't do and write at the same time. Um, but it's obviously something stirring all of us in one way or the other. And it's a subject about which I can't be objective. As Ron mentioned, my mother and father are both immigrants from Northern Ireland. They met in New York, in a dance hall that still exists called Webster Hall, although there hasn't been an Irishman in the joint for about 30 years. Um, but they met in 1934, the, the year in which North River takes place, although they're not in it except in spirit. Um, and it it was a place uh, where the Irish went from different parts of Ireland and from different parts of Belfast, even. Um, and by that time, in 1934, my father had already lost his left leg. He was kicked during a soccer game during, in, uh, in, 
in the immigrant leagues in which there was a German team and a Jewish team and an English team and several Irish teams. And, of course, it was a time before penicillin or sulfur drugs, and the only way they could do this when gangrene had set in by the morning was to reach for a saw. Uh, that was 1927. He doesn't meet his wife uh, for another seven years. That must have been pretty lonely years because he couldn't, he couldn't take advantage of the things that Irish immigrants in New York in those days uh, could make a living at, uh, working on the waterfront, construction trades, buildings trades. Uh, he couldn't do that with one leg. Uh, but he was in the Webster Hall, my mother told me the tale later, and he was with some friends, and they were all dancing with women on the dance floor. And he sat on a chair up against the wall watching. And she came over and said, let's dance. He says, I can't dance. And she said, ach, neither can I. And took his hand and led him to the dance floor with his wooden leg under his thing. And a year later, they were married. So what they did for me as the oldest of the seven kids and the gifts they gave us were astounding. They were short people like a lot of the immigrants of those days. Uh, if you look at the pictures of Jewish immigrants at the rails of the ships gazing warily at the unseen skyline of New York, you know they were all small people. Um, some of them are still alive. They're in Florida, most of them. <laughs> They back out of driveways doing 82 miles an hour, and you can't see their heads. You know, it's the, the classic headless driver. Um, but they were giants, too. And any of you who come from the immigrants, and that's almost everybody in this amazing country, um, giants got us here. And so I always try to honor them, and not just them, but the millions of people who were like them. In my neighborhood, it was essentially uh, Irish, Italian, and Jews. Uh, the great black migration from the South had not begun. It didn't begin till the early 50s. The Latino immigration hadn't started yet from Puerto Rico, and it wasn't really an immigration because... Puerto Ricans were American citizens from 1917 on. Um, but there's no way that I can think about immigration today without thinking of them and the kinds of things they did for us, all those people. At the same time, there was another aspect to this about why I can't see this thing very objectively. In 1956, on the GI Bill... I packed up with another friend, and off we went to Mexico. I wanted to be a painter. There was a school in Mexico called Mexico City College that accepted GI Bill students. It was an amazing, wonderful place with a good art school and a couple of good writing instructors. Um, but I understood in the first weeks I was there, because I spoke not a word of Spanish except gracias, so they would ask me my name, I'd say, gracias. You know, they'd ask me where I lived, gracias. Um, 
And it made me understand what it's like to be a immigrant without English, without the language. Because the basic thing that really you feel incapable of doing is expressing decent manners. You can't ask directions and then say, thank you very much. You don't know how to do something as simple as that. And I think of it every time I pass immigrants in New York, which is every single day, um, that they must be struggling with the same thing I felt in those early days because I didn't have the problem with my parents. They spoke English. Um, and I understood that, that it was not unique to those immigrants, although the Yiddish-speaking Jews from Eastern Europe certainly had the same problems when they first arrived. The southern Italians from Naples, Calabria, and Sicily had the same problems. They even had problems talking to each other um, because dialects might be different and they, they couldn't understand each other that well. Uh, but when I think about both those situations, uh, being a stranger in a strange land, um, and trying to express your own humanity to other people uh, while inquiring about theirs, it seems to me something I will carry in my luggage to the day they cart me off to Greenwood Cemetery. In Mexico, um, I learned many other things. I, nobody could have been kinder to me than Mexican people. Uh, nobody is a, no others that I know are as essentially decent and human, along with being hardworking as Mexicans. No stereotype was more inaccurate than the stereotype of the lazy Mexican sleeping up against a wall somewhere. Um, and they, they were very kind to me. At one point, along with a couple of other dopes, I got in a fight in a bar somewhere and ended up in jail in a prison which is still there called the Lecumberi in Mexico City. And I was in jail for about five, six days. Um, and in the Lecumberi, there was no uh, place to eat. Families brought food to prisoners every day and left it at the gate for so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And for the five or six days I was there, and it was a madhouse, uh, they shared their food with me. And after I finally got bailed out by a friend of mine, um, I would be walking down the Paseo de la Reforma, and a bus would go by, and some guy would yell, Pedro, como estamos? And it was one of the guys I was in jail with. Um, it was a very small society to be an alumnus of. Um, but when I hear the debate that's going on now, I think of all those people that I knew 50 years ago, and I still go back. I have a, my wife and I have a house there, and I know Mexicans of all social standings, from poor people who are semi-literate to people who write histories and work for magazines and all that. Um, I begin to think about the whole subject and I've tried to deal with it in different ways, including in the new novel. Uh, but I'm always reminded that the debate 
particularly the terms of it in the last year, which got more and more bitter as time went on, uh, that none of it was new. Um, the, 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 the quality of the immigrants themselves and what they believed in, they believed in work above all. They didn't go to New York to sit on the stoop, and they still don't. Um, and they had a kind of toughness. It was a toughness that I still admire because it was not bullhorn toughness. It was not talking tough. It was being tough. And that meant tough in hard times, the ability to endure things until they got better without getting desperate, although there were some desperados among them, but to be able to endure. And I think that toughness is the thing I remember the most about them, that whole generation. The other thing I remember about them is how generous they were. They watched each other's kids from the windows as they played in the streets. They knew who was, who was drunk and heading up to the wrong apartment. If there was a thief in the neighborhood, and there were very few because there was nothing to steal uh, in neighborhoods like that, they watched. Um, in a certain way, it was very Irish. There's a famous Irish novel of about 40 years ago called The Street of Squinting Windows. The windows seemed to squint. You know, there were these old biddies that had nothing else to do. You know, the husbands had mercifully died young. And so they would, they would dress in black, go to mass in the morning, come out around 1.30 in the afternoon, and then watch usually for signs of sin, uh, which is very difficult to do, and I tried very hard when I was about 14 or 15 to commit real sin. I couldn't do it. Um, at the same time, they were so kind to any of us who were kids. Um, some of them were women with kids whose husbands were off at the war because it was the kind of neighborhood that didn't profit from the war. It fought the war. Uh, There was a billboard with the casualties painted on every week. Who died? Who died? Who died? There were flags in the windows that turned into gold star flags uh, when somebody was killed. Uh, So the war was with us all the time. But at the same time, they were giving us these amazing things. One of the most amazing things was that the way the Italians taught the Irish how to eat. The Irish food at the time was about, I mean, guys on eating K rations, C rations, uh, who were Irish were saying, this stuff is great, you know. <laughs> It's like women at a spa, you know, on the fifth day of starvation, talking about comparative merits of airline food. But the Italians taught us. They showed us how to make food taste good. They gave us the aroma of garlic and oil. They made us understand that you can be poor, but you can also eat. That food was not, as the British had told the Irish, food was not fuel. It can be more than that. (laughs) The Jews were giving us other gifts. One of them, most important when Ron talked about Regis and the Jesuits, uh, 
I was convinced at one point that all the Jesuits were Jews because the, the, the way they valued education, excellence, the moving on, whether you were poor or not, it didn't matter, that you could learn something and be better. Uh, it was an amazing gift to give us. At the same time giving us the big gift, which I think the Jews gave all New Yorkers, uh, which is the gift of irony, the difference between what's promised and what's delivered, which people in New York and a lot of other places, including right here, I'm sure, um, think of as an American attitude towards things. Yeah, it's a nice day, but there could be an earthquake tomorrow. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I always think of it as leading inevitably to one of the secular saints of my youth, Lenny Bruce. Uh, Lenny Bruce was, for those of you who are too young to have heard him, if, you ha if you've never heard him, go out and get the CDs. They still exist. But he was also a theologian. And I remember so clearly I was about 21, back from the Navy, uh, about to go to Mexico, going to see Lenny Bruce somewhere. And he was doing a routine, and one of the things he said was, it's a good thing they didn't electrocute that Jesus of Nazareth. We'd have these buildings all over the world with chairs on the roof. And I said, <laughs> I, said I never thought of it that way, you know. But that was one of the gifts that we were given. I also think there was something else going on, though. Um, Charles Dickens went to New York in 1841, and he went to the Five Points, which was the worst slum under the American flag then and probably forever. Um, it had no water. The myth of the dirty Irish was, in fact, based on truth because there was no water you couldn't wash every day. You had to go to a, a, a municipal well four or five blocks downtown and pay for water and carry it home. And most people there were so impoverished they couldn't afford that every week until later on when the Croton water began to flow even into the Five Points. And Dickens goes into a joint in the Five Points and he sees a young black dancer who was a freed slave from Rhode Island named Master Juba, J-U-B-A. And in his book, American Notes, he writes about seeing Master Juba and how he's the greatest dancer ever, says Charles Dickens, who was at the beginning of his fame. And he writes these thing, this piece in, in a as journalism, too, before the book was published. And it appears in London, and somebody says, we have to get this Master Juba over here. Meanwhile, some of the Bowery guys, the Bowery prom music promoters, had read the same piece and said, what if we team this kid up with an Irishman? And they find a guy named John Diamond, who's the best clog dancer of the day, and they put them on together, and it was very much like cutting sessions at a place like Minton's in Harlem in the 40s where bebop was invented. And uh, Master Juba would, uh, John Diamond would do some steps. You think of river dance, you know, those kind of steps. 
And Master Juba would say, yeah, watch this. And he would do his version or his variation on it. Together, they invented tap dancing. So from those two kids comes later Fred Astaire, uh, Gene Kelly, the Nicholas Brothers, Gregory Hines, a whole generations after generations of people who might never have heard of either one of them. But it was the kind of thing that only could have happened in a city like that, that Master Juba, had he stayed in Africa, wouldn't have been the dancer he was. It took the crazy music of the Irish and the Five Points to bring out something in him that he could improve. John Diamond, if he'd stayed in Ireland, would have been the best clogged dancer in his building, maybe, but not in all of Ireland. Together, they created this thing, which I think is the genius of New York, of mixing cultures, of allowing the joining of cultures together so that something new emerges. In that case, it was a musical newness. And I think it follows the pattern that all these immigrant groups have given to New York. Um, it almost always begins uh, these days with food. Suddenly you look, look up, there's an Afghan restaurant on Lexington Avenue. Say, what? what is this? What is even the food about? And people go in and take a chance, and the next thing you know, there's people outside the door trying to get in. It then moves to music, and we've seen this particularly uh, with different generations of all kinds of immigrants, where the music begins to get into the, uh, into the culture in a way. Latin music is the most amazing version of it. But music from the American South that blacks brought to New York, that became part of the New York sound. Uh, music that came from country and Western people that was really a variation on Irish music comes and becomes part of the what I call the alloy, the thing that where you take different metals that are individually uh, weaker than the alloy that joins them all together. And that alloy began to, uh, to form. And then the final one is language. Words begin to uh, find their way into the language and they're there to stay. A couple of years ago, I saw my favorite headline, New York headline of the last 10 years. It was in El Diario, the Spanish language morning paper. And the headline said, Serrano dice, Serrano says, Yo no soy un schmuck. And I, <laughs> I said, that's the New York headline. He's showing he's bilingual, you know. Uh, and they stay there forever. You know, I can't tell you how many people in the last three days have sat in front of television sets yelling at some politician or another, schmuck or putz. Uh, they're there to stay. Uh, what's also interesting about looking at each of the, the immigrant groups that spoke foreign languages, Italians and, and Eastern European Jews, but also Germans whose history has been lost because of the different wars, it's, the history is not expressed. They were at one point the second largest immigrant group in New York. And they, they, a lot of them changed their names because of German baiting and you know, it was a period in World War I, they were banning uh, Frankfurters. 
And that's when the hot dog took over as a better word for it. It's not as good as freedom fries, but it's the same, it's related. You know, it's the same family of, in Carnegie Hall, they stopped playing Mozart and Beethoven during World War I. It was bizarre, but not new. Um, but usually it's three generations. The immigrant who comes generally speaks the language of the old country uh, with a few words to be polite, to try to be polite, please, thank you, to try to get paid with some of these ruthless bosses they used to have. Their kids are bilingual in, in both languages, although generally not literate in the old country language. And the third generation uh, has lost the old language. Uh, I once interviewed Keith Hernandez from the New York Mets and realized that although his name was Hernandez and my name was Hamill, I spoke more Spanish than he did because he was third generation. It had gone. He, 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 he was a wonderful speaker of English, but the old language was gone. And they still called him Mex on the team. Um, it's happening now, the same uh, evolution is going on right now. It's a slightly lower, uh, in a, the speed of it is slightly slower, is what I meant to say, um, because of other factors. Television is one of them. You can sit in New York and, and watch television, there's four Spanish language television channels, so the people from the old country in particular don't have to uh, learn English to be entertained or informed. Uh, but they, 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 they're doing it at the same rate. If you go to the Queens, the, the Central Library in Queens, you can't get a seat. It's, it's full of immigrants, all studying for citizenship, tests, for naturalization papers, for job interviews, that you can't get into the place, which is thrilling if you're a writer. You walk into a library and it's packed. You say, this is something. I mean, it's not NASCAR, but it's, but it's pretty impressive. And, and yet, even now, we're, saying, we're hearing things that we heard in the 19th century. Don't educate the kids of the, these people's kids. Don't educate them. You know, they didn't want to ha bring them, if they didn't bring them here or didn't have them, why should we pay taxes to educate them? And of course the answer is you pay taxes to educate them so they're not going to be a permanent underclass that doesn't, that's not literate in any language. Um, and, but it worked in New York. Um, particularly over the last hundred years. And I think there were factors that get underwritten or under-noticed by historians. One reason was the subway. There's now 700 miles of track of subway, which allows all parts of the city to communicate with every other part. It allowed, <coughs> in the case of the Eastern European Jews, to move to Brownsville and other parts of Brooklyn because there was a subway that could still bring them into work. They could live what, in what was then a new neighborhood and then became a ruin in the 70s and is now rising again, but it allowed them to live there and work 
where most of the jobs were in those days, particularly in the garment industry in Manhattan. Uh, so the subway was very important. Another thing that never gets dealt with is the rise of big-time sports after World War I. You know, you ended up, the Yankees get evicted from the polo grounds on general principles and build Yankee Stadium, and suddenly there were three teams in a city in which people who were Irish, Italian, and Jewish could all root for a team, not for a religion. It was a religion if you lived in Brooklyn. Um, but they could root for something that had nothing to do with the world that they left behind, that was American. I often say my father didn't become an American by reading de Tocqueville or the Federalist Papers or, or biographies of James Madison and his work on the Constitution. He became an American by reading the sports pages of the New York Daily News. My mother never read them. She became an American anyway. But she went to her grave at age 87, uh, not knowing a bunt from a shortstop, and it didn't matter. But my father it mattered a lot because that was the common language of the people he worked with, the people in our building, the people in our neighborhood, uh, big-time sports, in particular the Dodgers, um, including boxing, which had an ethnic basis. Uh, there's a famous story about by the 1930s, the Irish fighters had begun to vanish. And there was a guy named Lou Stillman who ran a gym on 8th Avenue, and he gets a call one day, and he says, Kelly, Kelly, do you want the Jewish Kelly or the Italian Kelly? And uh, that was what was going on by then, because the managers were Irish, but the but the fighters were uh, either Jewish or Italian and, and uh, hoping for a crowd by calling themselves Kelly. So big-time sports, I think, is the one area that deserves real academic examination to see what a unifying force it was for people. In, in one of my novels, I have a story of a, a baseball day in people crossing Prospect Park, the, the Italians coming out from South Brooklyn and Bensonhurst, and the Irish coming up from uh, what's now called Carroll Gardens and heading across, and um, the Jews coming from another part of Flatbush heading down into the Ebbets Field, and how finally in 1947, uh, the African-Americans were part of the, all those assemblies of tribes, and they were there because Jackie Robinson started playing baseball that year, uh, which led to some of the first moral arguments of my life, in which my father gave a shorthand version of by saying, I don't care what color he is, can he hit the baseball? It was no argument about whether a black American should or should not play baseball in the United States of America. It was absurd. So though base, uh, baseball in particular, because it was a large arena uh, sport, Madison Square Garden held about 18,000. But if you went to Yankee Stadium, you could put 50,000 people in the stadium to watch baseball. And so they, those were organizing forces that were at play. There were two historical forces, too, that 
made these different parts of the alloy come together. One was the depression. Uh, th there's no good side to the Great Dis Depression except one. It afflicted everybody. It didn't uh, spare the Irish on the West River, uh, the West Side docks, and only afflict Harlem. It afflicted it in general all over the city. Everybody was affected by it. It was so massive, so widespread. Um, and, you know, a lot of what I write about is the generation that endured that, uh, that amazing economic crisis. But it was something that brought people together in some way. There was, they, they were suffering as New Yorkers, not as Jews or Catholics or Protestants or anything. They all were afflicted by it. And the other one of the same period was World War II because everybody was involved in it. I don't know if you saw the, the PBS uh, Ken Burns thing on the war, but it's so clear from looking at that because I lived through part of it as a boy, as a young boy. Um, everybody either served in the war or shared the whole, the sacrifices of the home front, uh, the rationing, the shortages, the ability to um, look up at the gold star flag that was hanging in a, in a window and be able to console the person to whom loss was permanent. Um, but everybody shared in it. I remember my father, in my book, A Drinking Life, I tell this tale of um, Christmas in 1943, in which I was given a brand new pair of roller skates. The first time, I, first new roller skates, I think, ever appeared in my building, never mind in our apartment. And I got so carried away by this scrap metal drive that I threw these new skates into the into the, uh, I don't know what they call them, they were great big bins of some kind, collecting all this scrap metal. And my father got so angry, he gave me a slap, because the skates probably cost $4 or something, or $5 or something, which is a lot of money. Um, and my mother had to intervene and say, oh, Billy, he's only a kid. I mean, you know, as if she understood that that um, scrap metal job, uh, scrap metal drives might have been instruments of propaganda to create a sense of unity in the war. Uh, but as a boy, I took it seriously. And, but so did everybody in the neighborhood. So there was a sense that there was a shared stake in all this. My father worked in a war plant out in Bush Terminal at nights, uh, making bomb sites which he whispered to me one day, what do you make over there? Bomb sites. You know, because loose lips sink ships was one of the big slogans of the war. And I didn't know any Nazi spies um, at age nine. Um, I met a few later on in the newspaper business, but... <laughs> uh, but there was that sense that even he couldn't go in the service because of his leg. But he worked, and I kept thinking that what if 
There was a comic book called Captain America in which the great villain was a character named the Red Skull. And the Red Skull might have been some sort of anti-communist propaganda, too. I can't remember, but, but he was a saboteur. And I, I would worry sometimes that the Red Skull would find his way to Bush Terminal and put some kind of bomb in the place where my father was making these bomb sites. Um, we all shared it. It was in our imagination. It's nothing like what's going on with this war right now. Nothing at all, both in, either in scale or in shared sacrifice, particularly shared sacrifice. There were differences now, as, as I mentioned earlier, television. I think the Internet um, is, is, is a great class uh, qualifier now. Most immigrants can't afford a, a laptop. It costs too much money. They can't bring it home. Their kids... And they estimate that of the 12 million illegals in the country right now, they have three and a half million American children. As good as I am, as good as anybody in this building, as good as Tom Tancredo. Um, so there's a class division going on about who can have access to this extraordinary new tool in this century. I think to his credit, Bill Gates and his wife are doing their best to try to get computers to people that can't afford them. Um, but it's one of the things creating gaps right now um, that we're going to have to deal with. I think a much more important thing, though, uh, about this generation of immigrants compared to the ones I grew up with, there's no Tammany Hall by which I mean there's no big city organizations as there were in Boston and Chicago and Kansas City and other places in which professional politicians, all Democrats, basically not ideological, um, would help process immigration waves. The immigrants would, they often in the wonderful old days, they would meet immigrants at the piers and as they were getting off boats and say, follow me. They would help them to become Americans. They first of all helped them to fill out the forms to apply for citizenship. They helped send them towards jobs. They'd say, go over to Brooklyn to such and such a street and ask for McGinty and he'll put you to work. They only had one thing they wanted from these immigrants. They had to vote for them for the rest of their lives, along with all their children. Uh, and often, as they used to say in my neighborhood, vote early and vote often. Uh, uh, that was the deal. But, and, and a lot of the Tammany guys in New York and in the other big city machines were corrupt. They were taking a piece out of the construction budgets and and civil service jobs and so on. They got kickbacks from suppliers. But they also performed an amazing social function. They helped do what is now not being done for this immigrant wave, helped make it easy to apply to be legal, 
that function is not being picked up by anybody right now. There are some immigrant organizations that are trying to fill in the gaps. But if if the Democratic Party were serious, or the Republican Party for that matter, if the Democrats were serious about making the country of the next 25 years, they would go back to the kind of organizations they had when people really needed to find their way in this complicated country. And they could still do that. They could go in and, and help people really try to sort out what are often baffling rules and regulations, no matter whether you read English or not. What I like to look at and, and think about when I go, because I live not far from the Immigration and Naturalization Service in downtown Manhattan, and so every morning when I walk past there, the immigrants are lined up around the block trying to do things the right way. Um, and I talk to a lot of them, just wandering around, and I can speak a little Spanish, so I talk to the guys that work in coffee shops. Some of them are my friends. I see them every day, and people working in construction jobs. And what's so clear to me is they have the same ambitions for their children that my mother and father had. They want, first of all, they want their kids to be taller than they are, you know. And it's working. You see kids who are nine who are as tall as their father, you know, because they're getting protein more than they ever had in their lives. They're, uh, they're flourishing in this country. Um, above all, more important than that, they want them to be better educated than they were. You constant, I'm constantly running into people who went to primaria and dropped out after the sixth grade and never went to secondary school. Obviously, you had no chance at all at the university. And on every May, I go to the graduations of some of the schools in town, CUNY particularly, where they educate where their tuition is low. But even at NYU, where it's ridiculously high and where I teach a little bit, uh, and when you go, there's always somebody on the edge of the crowd, a whole family. Um, they were all weeping, except the dope in the top with the hat. You know, he's in the, he's looking weird, doesn't want his girlfriend to see him over here. But they're all weeping because it's the first kid in 500 years of history of that family who ever finished at the university. The first one. And it, you see it every spring for the last 10 years. I, I go out of my way uh, to go to these places because that's the thing that I love about the country. I love the sense that in one generation you can go from semi-literate to a college degree. You can see it. It's observable. It's there. And we should be cheering this not hearing things saying, why are we paying for the education of the... Instead of that mumbling, grumbling attitude, we should be cheering. It's the only country I know that does this, and it's still going on. I'm sure if you come here in, in May and all those kids are out there with what I always think of as an aircraft carrier version of a yarmulke, you know... It, <laughs> 
it sits here, but it's got a flight deck. You know, I don't, I don't even know what the name of it is. But if, if you go and you see those kids and see those families and how important it is to them, because just like my parents, they don't come to New York or any other city um, with any illusions about having something as fancy as a career. They want a job. They didn't come to sit on the stoop. They want to work. They want to be treated decently. Uh, they can be treated a lot more decently by being allowed to become citizens or join unions and do the things that still are beyond their grasp. Um, but they're amazing people, those people, and we should be cheering the fact that they chose this country to come to. And part of what they gave us um, and still are giving us is this belief that in the absolute importance of work, particularly work as it applies to school. You know, people worked at being um, successful in this world. And it's not, the, they used to talk about the luck of the Irish as if the Irish were so stupid they could only succeed if they had good luck. Um, and the Irish had handicaps when they came, um, mostly about literacy. Um, but this other sense that uh, when you come, you're not alone. When you come, the Irish, my mother, I remember, used to send $5 a month. That's all she could afford to her brother in Northern Ireland. And during World War II and, and in the first five years after the war, she couldn't afford $5. Uh, uh, Mexicans are sending money back to their families in, the, in Mexico, um, sending billions of dollars back to those families to help them live reasonably decently in the most impoverished parts of Mexico, which is not an impoverished country, but it has impoverished sections in the South um, that are being supported in some ways by people who are working in short order cooks and gardeners and, and uh, collecting garbage at three o'clock in the morning. The other thing that they're replenishing these new immigrants is what I think is the most dominant emotion of a city like New York and that's nostalgia. Um, nostalgia. The kind of urban nostalgia I'm talking about is not sentimentality, which is a fake. Nostalgia is real feeling about things that actually existed. You go away for the summer, because velocity of change has a lot to do with it. You go away for the summer, your favorite coffee shop isn't there when you get back. Uh, and there's a hole where they're going to put girders for a new skyscraper. Um, things change so quickly on certain levels in a place like New York. But also there's another level of nostalgia that's specifically about immigrants. It's a longing for the place where they were four years old. That's always the old country whether it's Sicily or Palermo or the west of Ireland or some godforsaken shtetl in the middle of Eastern Europe that no longer exists, there's people feeling some anxiety for it. I, I used to know this because, among other things, in the 50s I was a big fan of a show at night called Symph Jumping with Symphony Sid. 
Symphony Sid played jazz, which I loved. And I would work late into the night as an artist. And he would go off the air at, 12, at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, from midnight to 3. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd hear the young Hungarian hour in Hungarian Yiddish. None, I didn't know a word of it. But I, it made me realize there's many different ways to even listen to the radio in New York. Uh, and this station was one of them. And it was representing a, a period in, in which the last of the Yiddish speakers were all alive in New York. Their newspaper, the Daily Forward, sold 250,000 copies a day and probably had about 700,000 readers at the peak of the circulation in the 1920s. Out of it came people like Isaac Bashevis Singer, my favorite Nobel Prize winner who got the news in a delicatessen in Fort Lauderdale. The only guy to ever get the news that way about winning the Nobel Prize. Um, but also it was a paper that really tried to do something interesting. And it has to do with these generations of all of them. It was trying to put itself out of business. If it did its job right as an agent of assimilation, of explaining the city to the immigrants who spoke only Yiddish, um, it would eventually go out of business because their children... Um, wouldn't be speaking or reading Yiddish for sure. And most of the kids, Jewish kids in New York in those days, didn't even go to Hebrew school. That was not until after the war. So that period of our history also was about great change. Uh, the Daily Forward now is once a week in English. Uh, and even the pages they had in Yiddish for the last readers in Florida uh, are mostly gone now. There's a page here and there. But I think also, and I, I don't want to dwell on this too much about New York, but it goes back beyond that generation. From the very beginning, we, were, we had the good fortune of being founded by the Dutch. Uh, the Dutch West India Corporation. Not a king, not some religious sect, a corporation. And what they were interested in was making money. So they didn't come with noble goals. I always think of, of the, the way it felt to arrive at the foot of Manhattan Island in 1630. It must have been like some of those Ray Bradbury stories about the isolation and loneliness of living on Mars as among the first settlers. They came and they couldn't bring anybody else. So people don't emigrate from rich countries and the Netherlands was a very prosperous country uh, through trade, by the way, not conquest. And they were very tolerant. Jews were able to live in the Netherlands. So they, even the Jews didn't have to leave the Netherlands to go somewhere else in those days in which anti-Semitism was common around the rest of Europe. So they opened the doors and allowed anybody in. There was an official Dutch religion, but even the Dutch didn't care much about it. Most of what they did was making money, drinking, wenching, and smoking. It was like paradise to some of them. 
But what they knew that the only way that it could work at one point in, I think, 20 years after the foundation of the settlement, um, uh, 16 languages were being spoken in New Amsterdam. 16. Uh, and they knew the only way to make that work was through a policy of tolerance. It was the thing that made sense, that you had to say, okay, there's people who are not like me, so what? Let's go to the bar and we'll talk about this. Um, and they institute what, what essentially was a policy of tolerance. Peter Stuyvesant, who unfortunately has uh, a school named after, it, after him, who has uh, an apartment complex to which Ron Tobin spent part of his youth, um, he was not so admirable. You know, he would wander around in a rage with his silver leg, peg leg, and, and uh, he, he wasn't so nice to some people. Um, although years later, he was buried in a place on the 2nd Avenue near the heart of all the Jewish theaters, the Yiddish theaters. And there he was in the graveyard of St. Mark's in the Bowery. And, and about every two years, kids from the Lower East Side would come over, go over the fence, try to dig up the grave and get the silver leg. <laughs> And, you know, they knew what was important and uh, never succeeded, apparently. And who knows whether the silver leg was even there or where it is. Probably it was stolen by fellow Dutchmen or by the English who came in and stole the whole colony at gunpoint at one point. But the, the English also knew that they couldn't make it work without maintaining the policies founded by the Dutch. And so for the more than 100 years that the British ruled the colony, um, it was still the most tolerant of all um, the, the, the settlements that were made on the east coast of the New World. The Spaniards had uh, obviously settlements in California, in New Mexico, in Santa Fe, and places like that, um, in which they also used intelligence in what they were doing. The black legend was invented by the British not by the facts, um, and, and did a good job in certain ways of making a kind of civilized encroachment into the new world. Um, but we did have other things that happened in the 19th century um, that also were relieved by the, by the continuity of what the Dutch uh, gave to us. There were big problems when the Irish started to arrive after the revolution. There was no Catholic church in, in New York until after the revolution. The, the first one was St. Peter's down by the Trade Center. Uh, it was burned down at one point and rebuilt in 1835. But there were riots down there. Um, uh, Anti-Catholic riots because they thought these Catholics were coming and starting to ruin the neighborhood, essentially. It got more intolerable later on. But first, the, the beginning of the Know Nothing movement started. And the man most famous in the Know Nothing movement in the early days was Samuel F.B. Morse, the man who invented the Morse code and a pretty good painter. Um, and he was 
he ran for mayor in 1836 and lost, thank God. But even by the middle of the Civil War, he was still defending slavery. He was a, a, somebody who believed in the absolute superiority of the people who got there first and didn't want that to be corrupted by all these new arrivals. And that ended up um, with the arrival of the first Irish in flight from the famine. And they had real problems. Most of them were illiterate. They estimate now, although nobody knows exactly, that 100,000 of them didn't even speak English. They spoke Irish. They came from the west of Ireland, uh, from usually from Donegal or from Cork, without ever seeing Dublin. And suddenly they're in New York, uh, not speaking English, and not being able to read it if they could speak it, uh, in a place where they would see more people in an hour on a Saturday afternoon walking down Broadway than they ever saw in their lives in the villages of the west of Ireland. Suddenly they're in this place. And I have a friend at NYU who's trying to trace some of the specific histories of the famine Irish, and one way you would trace it would be in Ireland to find letters that were written home and saved. And there's not hardly any letters until the American children start writing them for their mothers and fathers. And they're very simple. You know, kids in the second grade, Dear Bridget, we are well. Are you well? All is well. Signed Mary, you know, written in a child's hand, trying to be the writer uh, for, the, for the parents who couldn't do this English thing, who or couldn't read or write. Um, and I'm sure those kind of letters are being written right now by, for the mothers of people from Oaxaca and Chiapas and Guatemala and other parts of Latin America, the same thing. I see these kids walking along with their mothers every day, either Chinese kids who are a huge part of the immigration wave. Um, there's now three Chinatowns in New York, uh, one in the old place in Manhattan, which is practically obliterated Little Italy. Little Italy was once a, once a flourishing place. It's now about two blocks long on Mulberry Street. And it's a Sopranos theme park, you know? They got pictures of Tony, and they got Paulie Walnuts. There's a, 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 a one that sells a lot. It's The Last Supper starring the Sopranos. You know, guys leaning in. Guys we know are now dead. Um, and forget about it, T-shirts. Uh, and that's because things worked the way America promised they would work. Because these kids who grew up in the tenements of Little Italy went to, the sc went to school. They finally had role models who were not cops or gangsters or sanitation men or something, they, or restaurant owners. Uh, they had Marty Scorsese. They had Francis Ford Coppola. They had Mario Cuomo. They had people they, they could, that, who, by their existence, said, if you work hard and get educated, you can do it here. And they did it. And they weren't going to live in tenements after they did that. Uh, they're being punished now by living in New Jersey, but that's another story. Uh, 
Um, but as I always say, I mean, if it was good enough for Walt Whitman in the last 18 years of his life, I guess you can't make too many jokes about New Jersey. Um, so those places, uh, which would have been inconceivable um, 100 years ago, are examples of, of the absolute tenacity of the people that came. The, the Irish... Uh, the the Know Nothing movement got stronger as it went along. They elected a mayor named James Harper, who's the founder of the publishing company that still exists, Harper and Rowe, is descendants of this Know Nothing who got elected for one term because mostly they're full of blather and anger and resentment and everything, but somebody's got to pick up the garbage. How do you do this? Uh, There was no way for them to create an ideology of picking up the garbage. Uh, so they usually lasted a short term and never got elected at all. And there was more violence in the 19th century. The worst riots in American history were the draft riots of 1863, which were overlapping riots. The reason they always use the word riot plural is there was a class riot, there was a draft riot, there was a race riot, and there was a looting riot just to go and steal stuff. They had the good sense to break into Brooks Brothers and take everything they could grab. But like most riots, they, they robbed some of the stupidest stuff in history. In the modern riots, it was always paintings of parrots on velvet, you know, in the 1970s. You know, the worst stuff you ever saw in your life. You couldn't even sell off rooftops. Uh, but the draft riots changed everything because the bosses of Tammany came in and stopped them. Essentially, among them William William M. Tweed, who became the boss after the Civil War, but they stopped them and said, "You can't do this. This is not going to work." When the variations on the Orange riots broke out between the Irish Protestants and the Irish Catholics, the sort of Sunnis and Shia of Ireland. Um, Uh, Again, the political bosses stepped in and said, this has to stop. This is not going to happen anymore. There were 60 dead in one of the riots in 1870, and that was the end of that. There was some rioting in the 20th century, not much. Um, In the worst years of the 60s and 70s, when there were 35 dead in Watts and 30 dead in Detroit, and there was one dead in, in New York, because people held it together. They knew that the futility of that kind of thing that might have been good therapy, but certainly definitely bad politics. Also, the church had a lot to do with it. There was a guy named uh, about calming things down and exerting strength. Uh, There was a bishop named Dagger John Hughes, who also threatened to arm his parishioners if harm came to any of them. There would be a second Moscow, he threatened, uh, which is pretty chilling, I guess, when you think that the last Moscow burned to the ground. Um, And nobody was harmed. The threat was sufficient. Um, Things began to change quickly after that because I always cite the example of Thomas Nast. He was the greatest American cartoonist of the 19th century. He was himself an immigrant from Germany when he was 12 years old. 
He was the man that brought down Boss Tweed. Um, he was a great defender of uh, freed slaves. He was a friend of Grant and the Republican Party. And he had an absolute blind eye towards the Irish and Catholics. Uh, one of his famous cartoons, you might have seen it, showed different bishops coming ashore in America with their bishops' hats opening, the miters, opening like crocodile jaws, coming to eat America or something, you know. And by then, the Irish were starting to get literate. They were reading papers. And they didn't forget what this guy said about them. And within five years of his greatest accomplishments with Tweed, he was unemployable. He did some cartoons once a year. He invented Santa Claus to the relief of Macy's and a lot of other places um, so that people could practice Christmas without having a religious figure at the heart of it. Um, and he did a few other things. He became a painter, a pretty bad one. And at the end, he was begging for work because he, he couldn't get work. And Republicans gave him a job around 1901, 1902, as consul general in Ecuador. Talk about... And he sails for, uh, for Ecuador, where there had been an earthquake a week and a half before he arrived. He comes in, takes over as... Consul General. He writes some amazingly charming postcards back to his kids. He's finally getting paid. And two weeks later, he was dead of cholera. His whole, the, after his greatest triumph, the fall was permanent because they didn't forget what he had done at a time when they were vulnerable and he was strong. And it's an object lesson of some kind. People don't forget if they feel they've been injured by public figures who have some power. These days, we, we, we don't have issues quite the same, and we don't have people dying in Ecuador of cholera from uh, a diplomatic posting. Um, but we're dealing with some of the some amazing issues. I don't mean who wears an American flag pin or anything like that. It's what we do about the 12 million that are here. People are talking about deportation. Can you imagine what it would take to round up two million, 12 million people? If you tried to round up 12 million canaries, you'd have a hard time. But trying to round up 12 million people and leave their kids uh, to foster care, their American children, as you take them kicking and screaming off to detention. You'd have to detain them the way they did in Chile after Pinochet took over. You'd have to have tent cities and ballparks or something to house all of them while you got them to the border. And they're not all from Mexico. Only half are from Mexico. The rest are from China, from different Asian countries. In my building right now, there's five guys working on the facade. They're all from the Ukraine. I, I said, when did you guys get here? He said, ah, you know, I don't know nothing. Uh, so it seems to me in this issue, it, the impracticality of rounding up 12 million human beings is the heart of the matter. You couldn't do it. The American economy would collapse because somebody has to do this work. And everywhere that immigrants have arrived, in, particularly in New York, the figures are healthy 
The crime rate continues to drop. The welfare rolls are not going up. People are coming to work and they're not displacing anybody in a place like New York. So it has to be thought through in some way. Do we really want to do that? Do we want to create a world in, this, in which there's not one tomato on a plate in California? Because there'll be no tomatoes or lettuce or anything else if you said, let's round them all up and wait for Jenna Bush to take a job uh, in the Salinas Valley. <laughs> or join the Marine Corps. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the people from ICE, the immigration enforcement uh, people, uh, are now rounding up people, taking them out of poultry plants and things like that, and leaving chaos behind because they're not thinking of the consequences of it. But if the Iceman cometh, um, people have to think about what happens next. We're not too good these days in Washington thinking about consequences. I always think about, particularly about things. I, one of my favorite Republicans, Pete Domenici of Arizona, uh, and he has a very clear memory of what this could be like. Um, in 1943, at the height of World War II, there were roundups, not just of the Japanese in the West, but of Germans and Italians all over the country. And one night they came to Domenici's house, he was nine years old, 1943, knocked on the door and hauled his mother away. She had come to the United States when she was three, her name is Alda. When, when she was three years old, she didn't know from papers or any of that. And you should, it should never be forgotten, by the way, that that awful slur, WAP, stands for without papers. That's where it comes from, without papers. Because we had these racist laws in 1924, 22, uh, banning all Asians, Japanese, Chinese, Koreans, everything, and banning Southern Europeans. Not banning them, but reducing the, their immigration numbers to 2% of the number of them who were in the United States in 1890. This is 1924. And the countries it was directed at were Italy, Greece, and Spain. They didn't want all these dark-haired people uh, who looked strange and had olive complexions and loved eating food that had taste. They, they didn't want them in the country. Um, and they knew that Jesus had blonde hair and blue eyes. They had seen the movies and the posters. Um, so there was nobody there at the time. Anybody who started coming in in the 20s was, from any of those countries was illegal. Um, and Domenici's mother was one of the people brought in. She was three years old when she came in with her father, who was also illegal. And they came and grabbed her in the middle of the night when Domenici was, was three years old, took her away, and she was gone about a week uh, and finally, the uproar, uh, they got her out of the jail and helped her do the paperwork and get it resolved, uh, and she was legal after that. But people do come knocking on the doors late at night in this country, too, and we should not be encouraging that to happen anymore. I could go on and on with cases like that, but... 
there's one story about my mother I want to tell, and then I'll, I'll, we'll take questions. I, when I was about, I used to love to go with my mother to Manhattan because my father couldn't go because of his leg. He, he never, as it was in his lifetime, he never played ball with any of his six sons. He never danced with his daughter. Uh, he never marched in the St. Patrick's Day parade. She was the ambular the ambulatory person in the family. And because she had no money, she, she thought of Manhattan as a great show, which it was, and she would take us. And we loved to see the wreck of the Normandy, which was a luxury liner from France that burned at the pier in 1942 over on the North River. And we were going over there this one Saturday. She was taking me and my brother Tom, who was two years younger than I am, and I was about um, eight, eight or nine, and he's two years younger, and we're walking, heading towards the west side and the river on 43rd Street, I think it was, and there was what we would now call a homeless man sitting against the wall in a little doorway and begging. Um, and my brother Tommy and I, as Brooklyn apprentice dopes um, started making remarks and my mother lost it and said and got angry at us and said don't you ever look down on somebody unless you're giving them a hand to get up and that kind that sentence has stayed with me to this day because it was not just her saying that everybody that I knew from the neighborhood I grew up in had the same attitudes they didn't come here, my parents particularly, because they had been the subjects, the objects of bigotry in Northern Ireland, uh, to do to people what had been done to them in Ireland. This was America. They weren't going to do that. The result was they had friends who were Italian and Jewish and African-American later on after the war when there were more African-Americans and uh, Puerto Ricans and other Latinos who came along, Dominicans particularly. She, they were friends with all of them because that was New York. That was the alloy. They were part of it. And I, I think about that all the time when I think about this sub, larger subject of immigration. There's all kinds of ways we could make the thing work better. I thought Bush's plan, as imperfect as it was, was better than nothing, better than indifference, better than granting a triumph to people who were looking to be stupid in public instead of trying to solve a real problem. Um, I go a lot to Mexico City. Uh, play, one place to start is at the American Embassy down there. People start lining up at 2 o'clock in the morning to try to get legal visas. If they're lucky, they get seen by somebody by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They have people at work holding places for people on the line so they can use the toilets down around the corner. <clears throat> if we had more uh, visa-only mini-consulates spread around the country to do this legally, we could get what we need, which is a labor supply, somebody that's going to pay Social Security for all those baby boomers who were about to hit the pavements all over the United States, 
Uh, they're doing it already. They pay about $7 billion in Social Security and Medicare that they're never going to collect themselves because all the IDs are phony. So they're paying it in, and whether the employers actually send it to Washington, some cop should go around with a subpoena and find out. Um, but they're going to—they're the people who are going to pay for for people for a long time if we have the good sense to let them stay. I think another way to do it is to allow them to place, if it's a short-term visa that Bush described, a kind of revival of the Bracero program, although that's not necessary anymore. Only about 12% of these immigrants from Mexico work in agriculture. They're working in construction and poultry and beef processing and all the nasty jobs. Uh, they're not so much picking lettuce anymore. But if they were going to come on a short-term visa for six months, let's say, or three months, let them put a $500 bond down. It's going to be, a, to go legally, it's going to be a lot cheaper than paying a coyote at the border and sneaking across with dubious chances of success at midnight. And when they come back, pick up the 500 plus interest and thank you very much and do it again the following year. You don't have to do it the way we're doing it now. Um, I, I'm somebody who believes you commit felonies, you go to jail. The, the Irish went to jail, the, the Jews went to jail, the Germans went to jail uh, if they committed felonies. And at the same time I was talking about earlier, right after the Civil War, 75% um, of the people in the jails in Manhattan were Irish. Um, not that they were criminal by nature, uh, because later on, 75% of the police department was, <laughs> was Irish. Uh, but the, 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 the Nelson Rockefeller didn't stick up gas stations. He sold them gasoline. So it's poor people that commit certain kinds of crimes and poor people who end up filling the jails. So nobody is saying amnesty for felons or anything like that. If they're felons, they get tried, convicted go to jail if they're not, they didn't kill their family, the family can visit them. Um, but the vast majority are not felons. Um, we should be doing more of that. I don't know about building a wall. I, I think it's, uh, to some extent, a waste of money because it's unenforceable in some ways. It's a 2,000 mile border. Uh, Bush wants to bring in 6,000 additional Border Patrol or National Guard or something. Uh, if you divide it into three shifts, that's 2,000 per shift. Uh, that gives you one guy per mile for the border. And so that doesn't seem to me to be a solution to this problem. The solution is to regulate supply and demand and be able to say, if you want to live in this country, some things you have to do. Um, and here's the way to do them, the way Tammany did in the old days. I think the one, the one final thing is, is the way we treat the immigrants. Uh, it, it, I think the, in the sen to the extent that they're examples of patience and fortitude, we have to have the same two virtues. I love the, the two names. Those are the names of the lions on the steps of 
The New York Public Library at 42nd Street. Patience is the name of one lion and fortitude the other one. But I think a little simple decency and a, a little sort of sense of welcoming to those people who you seem working hard every day, to say to them, gracias para venir, thank you for coming, uh, every once in a while, so they don't begin to feel that they're here, that they're resented, that they're, that they're in some cases hated uh, by people who, like, who talk about Christian values and are prepared to aim carbines at people named Jesus. You know, it, it doesn't have to be that way. We can, we can be nicer to them insisting on legality, creating a system of legality that's doable, and being serious about it. We need them. The Wall Street Journal editorial page is hardly an, you know, a creation of the American left. And they understand that you need to have these people uh, to do the work of this country. And that the reason we need them now is based on a great American success story. The last generation of people who did this work uh, succeeded. Their kids don't have to do this work. It's why they did it. They pulled lettuce and they worked in the goddamnedest places so their kids wouldn't have to do that. And they succeeded. So the generation of children which has gone to the university or into other better paying jobs uh, isn't there. So now we need a new generation of people who can do this. And that's the one that's among us now. And we have to figure out a way. I don't pretend to have all the answers to it. One thing I do know, deport, deporting 12 million people is not the solution. And being uh, in, in our hearts un-American uh, is not the solution either. I think we're a great country. We are made of great people. My life was made possible by my parents' decision to leave the place they were in. And I want to make sure that these young kids here have a shot at the same kind of life I had. And I think we're going to, we've yet to see the greatness that's going to come out of them. So with that, I will take questions. <laughs> Thank you. Obviously, obviously, it's a subject that we could talk about for hours, but... Yes, sir. Mr. Hamill, thank you very much for your comments and your experience, your, your history, your personal history. To what do you attribute the mix of fear and hatred that permeates the current immigration debate, especially on talk radio, and more... Importantly, perhaps, what is it doing to the American alloy, in your opinion? I, I, you know, it's very hard for a writer to listen to talk radio every day, you know, because you can't, you can't listen to anything that has a lot of words in it. Okay. So I listen to Gregorian chant and Clifford Brown and other people. Um, but I think it's, it, it's, it's one of the most discuss, disgusting. Uh, emergences of demagoguery that in my lifetime. The, 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 Lou Dobbs is not the problem. Limbaugh is not the problem. 
All the little Dobbsettes and Limboettes who think the way to go is to be even more hysterical, shrill, nasty, sneering than the people they're trying to imitate. Those are the people. When I was on book tour in June, I, I would go to different radio stations and get there half hour early waiting my turn at some discussion group. And I would hear a lot of this stuff. And I, I must say I was astounded at the level of nastiness. Um, whatever happens in my life, what's left of my life, I would hate one night to be trapped on a desert island with Ann Coulter. <laughs> you know, I'd say, holy God, I never thought I was capable of killing anybody. But I would gladly throw her off the island if the waters were shark infested, you know. So I, I wish it was a more temperate discussion. I wish that the temperature would be brought down because these kids, like the kids who, who were offended at the time of Thomas Nast, are not going to forget. Eventually, they're going to become Americans. Uh, not the ones that were born here, but their parents. And eventually, they're going to vote. And to follow the example of things in the past, they'll probably vote the other way for 50 years after that. And I would like to have a, a country that's as good as its best. Not as good as it, not, not at the level of its worst. I think we're better people than these people do. If some of these talk show guys love the country as much as some Mexican guy who's doing short order cook jobs and coffee shops, it'd be a better country. The, the uh, immigrant experience has uh, fueled great literature and drama, even recent works like Frank McCourt's memoirs and a fabulous film like um, The Gangs of New York show. It's not at all played out. Can you comment on any books or films that have influenced your own sense of the immigrant story? Well, early on, um, uh, James T. Farrell's Studs Lonigan trilogy, even though it's not directly about immigrants, it's set in Chicago and and which had immigrants too, of course, but but it gave me a sense that literature didn't have to be about exotic people in exotic places, that there was something in people like the people I knew that literature could be written about. And so Farrell, the first one like that, um, Erwin Shaw, in the short stories, doesn't write directly about immigrant experiences, but he's from Brooklyn, and you can feel that he is writing about that even though he doesn't label it that way. But there were some uh, novelists in the 30s, Daniel Fuchs, um, who's really a wonderful writer about Williamsburg in Brooklyn. He wrote three novels, none of them sold more than, as somebody once said, the high hundreds. Uh, and he went out to Hollywood and wrote movies. But the first three novels were really pretty good. Harold Robbins, of all people, he has a first novel called A Stone for Danny Fisher. It was a wonderful book about some of that Jewish side of the immigrant story. Michael Gold's Jews Without Money was a classic novel in the 30s. Um, 
the the guys that wrote after the war were different. You know, they they were they were writing as Americans. Uh, Saul Bellow is an American writer. Philip Ross, an American writer. Uh, <clears throat> so they didn't write directly about the immigrant experience because it was a long time since it happened by then. Because there was hardly any uh, immigration during the Depression either, because nobody would immigrate to a place with 25 million unemployed or whatever the number was. Um, but in understanding that there, there could be a dense culture in certain parts of Brooklyn, as I learned from some of those novels, uh, really influenced me that way. Patty, Jai Patty Chayefsky's early. Uh, movies, Marty and some of those were also part of it. But there's a whole rich vein that, uh, that, that should be thought about more. A lot of it's dismissed as social realism and so on, and some of it was communist propaganda, Michael Gold in particular. Uh, but some of it was really good, so it would be worth somebody, somebody to really take a look at it again. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, also, Flatbush. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I wonder if you could remind us of some of the qualities that have kept this country a wonderful melting pot because so many folks are concerned about the fact that jobs are being outsourced, you know, tremendously. Um, the advent of technology, people are losing jobs and are not being re-educated or equipped to to um, be involved with other professions. And then this whole thing about terrorism and scapegoating people who are from the Middle East and other countries. There's a lot of concern about that. So how do we keep the country glued together? How do we work on this policy of tolerance or intolerance? Well, I, I, I think probably what you're going to need before you can get people's attention is not... Uh, attract. I just read a wonderful book about uh, the genius of, called The Genius of America by Mike Oreskes, who's the editor of the International Herald Tribune in Paris, an old Daily News guy, um, and a professor named Eric Lane. And it's, it's about the framers and what they were trying to do with the Constitution. I think a lot of people have lost track of that. Mm. What the, 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 the culture of the Constitutional Convention was about, the, the recognition that they're going to be divergent attitudes. People are going to argue one thing or another, and they can do it with a certain vehemence, that the Constitution has to be uh, the way in which we get compromise, that compromise is the essence um, of the system. The last 30 years, compromise has become a dirty word. Mm -hmm. The new left thought it was a dirty word. You know, Mark Rudd and all the student guys all thought that liberals were the bad guys. <laughs> but there was also this whole demonizing of the opposition that went on with a lot of the right-wingers in the Republican Party. If you demonize the opposition, how can you compromise with him? He's, he's the devil, by definition. So I would hope, and I've written about this long, ten years ago, that we're heading into a dead end here where you can't have politics. Barry Goldwater, for example, who I admired even though I never voted for him, um, and I interviewed a couple of times, he said near the end of his life that uh, about the religious right 
that they were trying to turn politics into a religion. And if that happens, he said, politics is over. And he was right. You know, he, it, you can't have these condemnatory attitudes towards the people you disagree with, with and, and make any progress. Well, the only thing we have in this country, because it's not a country of military coups or the tanks rolling up to the White House, is politics. And you have to use politics intelligently. And you've got to start by stopping the demonizing. You know, Ann Coulter can't stand for for the uh, great honorable conservative tradition in this country. But these guys don't come from Edmund Burke. They come from Jerry Falwell or some other dingbat. I came back from Mexico about two months ago, turned on television, saw my first Republican debate of the season. Here they were, 11 guys lined up like a RICO indictment, you know, ready for the perp walk. And they were talking about evolution. And I said, what? Evolution? Uh, it's a long time since the Scopes trial. Which one of the guys in the press corps is H.L. Mencken? What are they doing here? And I turned it off. Because that's some sort of part of the demonizing process that they're trying to present themselves. And the, the Democrats are not doing themselves any good by not responding in some intelligent way with irony and laughter and making this stuff seem what it is, which is foolish. But there has to be a civilized discourse between the parties or we're never going to have a civilization here. And the immigration debate, uh, which really was fired by, by talk radio and Lou Dobbs and a lot of other guys, is an example how we, we were inflaming a situation um, that's not going to be solved by fire in, 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 in this case. It's not going to be solved by turning up the heat. The heat has to be turned down and rational people have to say, okay, what's the best way to solve this thing? And forget, throw out amnesty as a word, throw out um, the words that are getting people half nuts and sit down and say, what is this thing? What is it about? How are we going to solve this thing? And, and having intelligent discourse, we're not having it right now. Have you thought about going on Lou Dobbs and, and counteracting some of what he talks about or some of these other folks? I, well, I can't choose to go on Lou Dobbs. If he called me, I'd, I, I went on Bill O'Reilly about six weeks ago. Oh, good. <laughs> and, uh, he, and I know him for years, you know, because I, I, I helped him when he was a young guy. And uh, I got some of the most insane mail of my life, emails of my life, after I was on that show talking about this subject, about immigration. And it it sounded, some people wrote in all caps, you know? So it all sounds like a scream. Don't you dare about that. Um, And I wrote, uh, I answered a couple of them with the standard letter I had during Vietnam to lunatics that would write in. I'd say, dear sir, dear Mr. McGilligutty, some lunatic is writing letters to the editor here and signing your name. I thought you should know about this. I'm sure, yeah, but it, somebody said to me, never practice irony in an underdeveloped country. <laughs> you get killed for it. Oh, excuse me. I think, yes, sir. Um, 
You're absolutely right that, uh, that uh, arresting and expelling the uh, 12 million, and it may be more than 12 million, um, would be an undoable police state that America wouldn't stand for. <clears throat> I think, however, that you're, uh, you're wrong when you say that only 50% of the 12 million are Mexicans. I've, uh, I've seen figures that put it a, f a fair amount higher. At any rate, I'm, I'm wondering if, since you're from the East Coast, if you're as, uh, as privy as we are to the... Uh, to the incredible paranoia and uh, hatred and fear that attends the, uh, the Mexican question. It's not just Lou Dobbs and Rush Limbaugh. I mean, there are lot, at least 80 miles to the south and further south, there's, there's an enormous number of people who are extremely terrified of a Mexican influx, and it's you mean partly they, they might get gardened to death or something. Or well, there was there was a. What are uh, they afraid of? There, well, one of the things that that's helped set it off was a couple of years ago there was an anti uh, an anti anti uh, immigration demonstration in L.A. that turned out enormous numbers. I think larger than any anti war march that had ever been, and the numbers just scared people a lot. Um, but even like the front page of today's LA Times, there's an article about how uh, Mexican gangs are, are pushing out blacks out of out of black neighborhoods in uh, in LA. You but mean what, a hostile takeover or something? <laughs> yeah, right. No, but, but you, I, I, I remember when the I parades mean, went on, people were yelling, "Did you see all those Mexican flags?" These are people who apparently never were at a St. Patrick's Day parade, yeah. an Israeli Day parade, uh, and a, a Columbus Day parade. To wave the flag of the country you have affection for and which you came for is not betraying the United States of America. I was in the one in New York, and they were Mexican and American flags all up and down Broadway on the way to the INS. So but, if that's what you're talking about... Yeah. Um, but what's uh, a politically feasible solution to uh, to what, what seems to be in limbo right now. Not limbo, but limbo. Which is well, it's in limbo because of limbo. You know, uh, in part, obviously. We're not going to see anything happen till the presidential election's over because nobody, including the Democrats, is going to stick their chins out. They're afraid of this issue now. So it, it is in limbo. And uh, and that's sad because the uncertainty that's attached to that is bad for those, the people who are in the, uh, the, the status of illegality. It's worse for their kids. Imagine if you thought any night you'd they'll haul your mother off somewhere, screaming the way we saw in Irving, Texas, on television a couple of weeks ago. Women screaming because they're not even going to have time to go back to tell their kids where they're going. They grabbed at the plant and boom. And I think the echoes of that in the last century in different countries is spooky. You know, we're a better country than that. We're not the people who drag people off at midnight. You know, I think they should, whatever deal Scooter Libby gets, the Mexicans should get. You know? <laughs> If he get, he's got four felonies, remember, that he's guilty of. And if he gets uh, amnesty, it ought to be for everybody. 
just to get off the, the discussion, because the discussion's fruitless. We can't take 12 million people and throw them out of the country. And the numbers, uh, as you know, are all approximations. But what I've read is it might be 50%, it might be 60%, but the rest, a lot of it's uh, Asians, a lot of Chinese who come in on the mm -hmm. Canadian border, mm -hmm. which is very easy to get across because we're all looking for dark-skinned guys and we're, we're missing the other people up in the north. All the terrorists that came into the country by border crossings came from Canada, heading for Seattle and other places. Mm -hmm. um, and back in the days of, of Pancho Villa, the Mexican Revolution, after we put these anti-Asian things in, right after the Mexican Revolution ended, uh, the best Chinese restaurants in all of Mexico were in Mexicali. And classically, 22 Chinese guys would come for dinner and one would leave because the tunnels were still looking for existed then they'd go in come down come up on the american side and and head for new york i think <laughs> or san francisco so even if you put the wall people can go under walls or around them or go to canada take the the boat to canada and get off in vancouver and work your way back mm -hmm. if you want so that, those are not we got to straighten the the system out and make it easier to get visas legally Get, uh, part of the Bush plan was after five years, um, you can apply for citizenship if you've been in the U.S. without a criminal conviction for five years. You pay a $10,000 fine, which they couldn't possibly get. You know, no immigrant in the history of the United States ever had $10,000 until their kids went away and got married and left home. So, But you can fix that. That's what I mean about fixing it. Maybe it's... $1,200 and you pay it $100 a month or something. There's different ways you can do it. Um, but we got to do it. Uh, it's our country. And we're a great country. And we ought to remind ourselves of who the hell we are. At our best, not at our worst. I hate the ideas of guys sitting on the border waiting to shoot people. What the hell is that? Get a job, man. You know... It's, it's, it's so sad, you know, and, and, and it's not us at our best, you know. Okay. Thank you very much for the discussion and Pete Hamill, and now we will move on to the book signing. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.